for me, it's just really fascinating. I've studied sleep in the laboratory for about 30 years. And I think I learned so much just from a focus group when I listened to eight firefighters in Portland talking about the challenges that they have and the techniques that they have to get around those challenges. They're not in the textbooks. And it's and only by doing that kind of work can you bridge the gap between what is known in the science, what we do in the lab, and what is happening actually in the workplace. The mission of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. We work to prevent illness and injury in partnership with labor, industry, government, and the community. The Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences has more than 70 scientists and research staff exploring a range of questions relating to the prevention of injury and disease and health promotion among workforces in Oregon and beyond. There have been over three decades of research in occupational health advancements here at the Institute. On today's episode, we're going to dig in deeper into our history and how the Institute got started and how it has evolved over time. Our guests today are Drs. Peter Spencer, Stephen Shea, and Ken Anger. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. We're very happy to be here with Dr. Peter Spencer to talk about the history of the Institute. Dr. Spencer, I was hoping you could share with our listeners how the Institute got started. Well, it was in the mid-1980s. State funds were awarded to OHSU to create a major research institute for occupational disease research to promote the prevention of injury and illnesses uh, associated with the workplace. OHSU decided to focus this new institute, which was tentatively named at that time the Center for Occupational Disease Research on the Nervous System and on uh, neurotoxic disease. At that time, I was working at uh, New York's uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Mm -hmm. where I was uh, director of the Institute of Neurotoxicology, and was fortunate enough to to be asked to come to Portland to uh, lead the creation and direction of the new research institute. Um, and serve as a, an executive uh, committee member for the university. And so I was fortunate enough to be appointed founding director for uh, and serve for 20 years through 2009. Okay, that's fantastic. So it's, you had a previous leadership position in neurotoxicology, and OHSU was looking to make a switch to have that be more of a focus. You were able to lead the founding of the early days of the Institute. That's correct. The Institute was originally thought to be exclusively as a center for occupational disease research, but with the support support of of labor and business and the legislature, especially uh, then Senator Joyce Cohen, we named the new institute at that time the Center for Research on Occupational and Environmental Toxicology, or or CROIT, Mm -hmm. which enabled us to leverage research support both from the National Institute for Occupational Health Sciences, but also from the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. Okay. And renaming to Croat proved to be a wise decision because in the ensuing years from 94 to 2008, Croat scientists won three multi-million dollar federal uh, center grants, including a prestigious uh, NIEHS center uh, focused on toxicogenomics which together with similar centers at MIT and UW and University mm-hmm. of North Carolina set national standards for gene expression studies 
in toxicology and opened a whole new world of understanding of molecular mechanisms of disease. Wow, it's really fascinating. So it was a real expansion from not just looking at occupational health in the field, but also looking at some of the underlying basic research that has huge impacts on the health of workers on a genetic basis and a neurological basis. Yeah, my, my vision for Crow was to create a, a multidisciplinary research and training center using uh, leading edge techniques to understand the causes of workplace disease and injury and to develop and execute plans for primary prevention mm-hmm. of these conditions. And to help me, I promptly recruited Dr. Kent Anger from mm-hmm. the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, an expert in workplace health and safety. And he served as uh, my deputy director, uh, and he continues in that role uh, today. Uh, my own research focused on the chronic and delayed effects of chemical exposure on the nervous system using an NIH-funded program project research grant and team that I brought from New York to Portland. Okay. So we started in borrowed laboratory and office space in the Volum Institute while construction proceeded nearby to create a building that served the needs of both the Crowit and the School of Medicine. We worked with Portland artist Larry Kirkland to emphasize occupational health themes and molecular biology approaches and our focus on the brain. Thus was born the Italian marble head Mm -hmm. that stands outside the Institute today. Actually, half a head because of limited funds. We ran out of funds. (laughs) It wasn't just like to have more space to put some inspirational quotes and, you know, like a list of all the donors and such. Fortunately, in 30 years, actually, nobody has written on that head to my knowledge. Uh. (laughs) But... The plinth on which the head sits is inscribed with symbols um, intended to uh, welcome people of all nations to OHSU. People from different cultures would recognize the symbol and feel that they were at home. Wow. That's really cool to learn about. I walk past that every day, and I had no idea that I had that kind of background. You probably also Mm -hmm. walk over a cross-section of DNA as you walk in the main entrance. Oh, is that like a specific piece of DNA? Then? That was part of, uh, that was part of uh, uh, Larry Kirkland's uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. That was the molecular biology piece. And uh, the other side of the Crowit uh, space, uh, you'll find uh, inscriptions of historical occupational diseases mm. um, from, uh, often from Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, where occupational diseases were, were were commonplace in the post-industrial era. Wow, that's really fascinating. That'll be, I feel like that makes the Institute maybe a bit more of a tourist attraction, or at least for folks who are passing through. I want to look out for that. Well, I'll put it this way. The, I think the history of the creation of this Institute shows vision um, by the university, by the legislature, by business, by labor, and to get all those folks together and to bring some of the world's best scientists to Portland to carry out multidisciplinary research uh, is, is really noteworthy. We're lucky that you were a pivotal part of all that and how the Institute was able to address occupational health in a more holistic fashion, encompassing the basic research along with the applied research, which it still is a huge part of what we do today. 
That's right. While, while mm. uh, Kent Anger was busy building the occupational health program, uh, I was busy recruiting the, the finest available scientists across the nation and the world. Um, we, we brought in folks from um, four continents, whether they be faculty or students or postdocs, uh, to enrich the program of the center. And the faculty received joint appointments in um, OHS sc schools, such as medicine and nursing, to promote research, interaction, productivity, reach, and impact. We also created a toxicology information center to promote uh, outreach to Oregonians in particular. And the goal of this information center was to respond to questions about hazardous substances in the, in the workplace or in the home or in the broad environment. We recruited talented young Oregonian students to bring them for summer programs into uh, the center to taste research, laboratory research firsthand uh, in a program that I think continues today. So really the research and training that we were able to create reached beyond Oregon to much of the the world uh, as scholars from uh, Africa and Asia, Europe and the Americas uh, join Croat to enrich and broaden its program. That's fantastic. It's pretty amazing all the research and all the work that's been done over the last 30 years and how it's still an opportunity for Oregon students to get experience in the field of research and in the field of occupational health to help strengthen their community and you know, to make the workplace a place where people want to be. What were some of your favorite parts about your time at the Institute? Favorite parts are always <laughs> the discovery of, of new information and mm. the distribution of that information after careful weighing and analysis. And to do that, one had to, one wanted to rely on uh, colleagues with different areas of expertise um, who could dissect different aspects of the research data one particular member uh, was expert in statistics, and Michael Lazaroff uh, unfortunately re recently left the Institute. Mm. But Michael was uh, very important because he believed, as I believed, that before any research is done, it's critical to sit down and to analyze the um, exp proposed experiment to determine whether it's powerful enough Mm. in terms of the numbers involved in order to answer the question that you seek to ask. So to have a sufficient sample size, it was important to have someone who has more of a statistical background. That's right. And, uh, of course, um, that need is, is ever-present and present today, and uh, we hope that will be um, enhanced in the Institute uh, yeah. in, in future months. We're always looking for new organizations to work with, and we're always concerned about how the sample size affects the conclusions that we make, and we're very conservative with our estimates of the impact that our programs will have, but they have impact nonetheless, and it's important for organizations to consider how the basic and the applied research that we've been able to do at the Institute can make their workplace healthier and safer and sometimes more cost-effective. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today to share your insights and memories of, you know, the history of the Institute, and we look forward to seeing you at future events at the Institute, too. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and I may I just say in closing that uh, to, to my colleagues, uh, past and present, that 
Uh, I'm honoured to have served as founding director of the Institute and proud of the accomplishments that we achieved in the first 20 years. And it's an absolute delight to see how the Institute has grown and flourished under uh, Director Stephen Shea and his uh, leadership team. Thank you. Dr. Ken Anger, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how about you tell us a little bit about how long you've been at the Institute and just uh, what, what's been your role here? So I've been here a little over 30 years. I started out at my career at NIOSH and then came to here as my, the next uh, final part of my mm -hmm. career. That is exciting. So you've been here longer than we're able to cover in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's very exciting. It would be a very long podcast it if you be. let me talk. So <laughs> keep we'll me under control. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to share as much as you'd like. How about okay. that? What I'd love to talk more about is that I think our, this institute is unique in that it's a research institute, but uh, what's also really exciting is that it has a really well-developed outreach program. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how outreach even became a priority in the first place to the institute and why it's important that it's still here 30 years into the institute's time. Sure, it's really uh, our biggest impact really happens through, through outreach, I think. Um, outreach was important really from the beginning, and our advisory committee, mm -hmm. then it was SACOSH, now it's MLAC, mm -hmm. gave us valuable early guidance, and they wanted particularly to get our newsletter out widely. Mm -hmm. And it was a paper newsletter in those days, mm -hmm. and so, but we were worried it was just getting stuck on desks, not getting to people. So we ramped up quite a bit. We started mm -hmm. making presentations to local groups, and mm -hmm. that led to the development of a resource directory, mm -hmm. which had information about chemicals that were cura and, and exposure hazards mm -hmm. and other kinds of hazards that were curated by people who knew what the, what the information was about. Mm -hmm. And that became one of our biggest impacts. Uh, people would use that. We had hundreds of thousands of contacts over, over time. Until recently, that's been a really big part of our impact. Another mm -hmm. big part was the Internet. Mm -hmm. We went to GOSH, the Governor's Occupational Safety and Health Conference, and presented uh, classes on how to use the internet, and they were just standing room only. Um, <laughs> we had to double up our, <laughs> our opportunities, and so mm -hmm. they became really uh, a big part of our impact as mm -hmm. people were just learning about the internet. We helped them learn about that. And then we started developing intervention research to develop and evaluate training interventions with people, particularly who didn't use computers or who didn't, the immigrant workers who didn't really have very much education when they came to Oregon. And so we were focused on people who needed that training the most and that as online training developed, never really focused on that group. It was more people who were more facile with mm -hmm. online training. But so that's what we, we focused on. So that's kind of how it's evolved from outreach into mm -hmm. intervention research. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because it, in addition to the outreach and the research, you talk so much about how technology has been and its, and its evolution has been such a part of how we've uh, evolved as an institute as well. And it's, um, I think, with the with the kind of research we do here because it's so important to worker well-being and safety and exposures in the workplace that outreach is even more impactful in that people are able to hear what we're what we're doing read about what we're doing and learn more about how to prevent exposures and things like that in the workplace hazardous exposures 
how has outreach and the whole outreach program in general, how has it tied back into research? You talk about outreach and how it's gone from basic research to more intervention research and how all of this coexists today. And how does outreach continue to support both of these aims? Outreach has had a really big impact over mm -hmm. time. Probably our earliest intervention research was with the painters through John Kirkpatrick. And he asked us to develop a training program for people that didn't use computers very much. Of course, this is a long time ago, and that was on respiratory protection. But that training program is still use in use at the Painters Union today. Yeah. Um, another yeah. example is our collaborations with Leda Garside and Agriculture. It got mm -hmm. us into the agricultural population, which mm -hmm. was coming primarily from central Mexico and had really limited education. Mm -hmm. So that helped focus our training interventions on mm -hmm. people with limited background and, and experience with um, online training. Mm -hmm. Home care workers real, were really affected by abuse. They would go into homes and they, mm -hmm. they were alone in those homes. There was no security. Mm -hmm. So we de developed training programs for them and we got that through contact with the Home Care Commission that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And then we developed training to prevent uh, or to teach managers how to help people who were being abused mm -hmm. outside of work, but it would come in and affect work to do things that those workers would want to keep them safe, at least from um, the abuse that they were uh, seeking. And we did that in 26 Oregon counties, all the ones that didn't already have something mm. for that, and um, something over a 1,000 people were involved in that. All these training interventions really mm. remain viable and today and are still available. Mm. More recently, Ryan Olson's collaborations with transportation, first was in trucking, now it's in transit drivers, where more sophisticated interventions were developed. It wasn't just training, it was added on practice. It was incentives and competitions to make sure that what we taught them in the training continued to, to go on and rather than just uh, f people forgetting about the immediate mm -hmm. training. They were practicing it. They were continuing to use what, what the intervention was about. And then Dee Dee Montgomery, uh, when she joined the Institute um, uh, 12 or so years mm -hmm. ago, she really started building collaborations with a number of partners around the state, different organizations and different professional groups, and started doing trainings for them. And that broadened our impact uh, substantially. That's that's a lot of examples, and that I think it makes it really compelling because it <laughs> it shows that you know research and outreach go hand in hand so much. And part of the research we think is so inward facing and inbound. And so, but when we really think about outreach and going out, especially for the work we do, it's so important to go out and to learn about the communities where the research is most needed and finding solutions and interventions. And I believe that all the interventions that we've developed here at the institute target those specific needs within the community. So it's been a really effective package sounds I, like and i think something that really is a big part of everything we do mm -hmm. is we listen to the workers Absolutely. we go out and talk to the people who mm -hmm. we are developing these interventions for right. and say give us your input and to right. evaluate what we're going to give you before mm -hmm. we really do it so mm -hmm. we we listen really yeah. closely to what the workforce says and and to management as well yeah that's wonderful um so speaking of management, you mentioned MLAC uh, earlier in this conversation. So what is MLAC and what role do they play in our work and how do we work together? 
So they're the Management Labor Advisory Committee. They're put in place by the governor and really the legislature to oversee all work comp issues. And our, we get base funding from the workers' compensation system, and they, they're tasked with kind of overseeing the sorts of things that we do. So we meet with them regularly, or they ask us to come and present to them, let them know what we're doing and, mm-hmm. and what kinds of things we're doing. And MLAC is con- comprised of half labor and half management, mm-hmm. and they work effectively together. And that's what makes Oregon such a special place and such a great environment in which to mm-hmm. do occupational safety and health research and uh, outreach and so forth yeah. is because everybody seems to be working together to solve the problems, and there's a, a good collaboration between um, both labor and management, and that really happens all the time at MLAC. It's really impressive mm-hmm. to see it at their meetings. And when you say management, do you mean the decision makers in these organizations? What does management entail? So it basically is is the representatives of the company, that the owners of the company. It's the man- right. people who, who manage the, the, work the, pl- workforce. the workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I think that is an in, a really interesting and important point as well, because I think it takes us, okay, it'll take us into the next question. I think you touched on how important it is for, if when we talk about worker well-being, to have all the levels within an organization, all the key people within an organization come together and strategize worker well-being. So this is, this is useful. Thank you, Kent. Mm-hmm. So moving a little bit more recently into your tenure, right, you have been the director of the NIOSH Total Worker Health Center of Excellence. Tell us more about it. Tell us more about this center. So, yeah, thank you. I'm really happy to talk about mm-hmm. the Total Worker Health Center. We were the four, we won the grant. We were the fourth center to win a Total Worker Health mm-hmm. uh, Center grant back in 2011, and it's had a really broad impact, mostly because of the quality people we have in that center mm-hmm. that we brought together for the application. Mm-hmm. NIOSH really redefined occupational safety and health back in 2011. Safety and health remained the foundation of it, but they added well-being, worker well-being, into the definition of occupational safety and health, which broadened considerably the impact of the kinds of things that you, you can do. And we, they recognized and we recognized that by changing the workplace environment, as well as getting people to change their work practices, was the route to having a safe and healthy workplace with an environment that also supported the well-being of the workforce. It was a really big change, a really big change that had an impact really throughout the country and um, as, as well as beyond, and certainly in Oregon, it's had a big impact. Hmm. That's exciting. This is some of the interventions that you talked about with the trucking, with home care workers. So this, these have been outcomes off the Total Worker Health Center, right? There, yeah, we've we've had we've developed a number of interventions yeah. through the Oregon Healthy Workforce mm-hmm. Center that have had impacts on those organizations, on mm-hmm. home care workers, on transportation workers, um, yeah. people in call centers, just mm-hmm. a variety of different kinds of workforces around the state. Mm-hmm. And what a lot we've had to learn as we go into these new populations and industries and trying to understand the the issues and and the um, and the solutions we might even try to develop for them so i bet it's been ex- uh, really exciting is there anything else you'd like to share 
just about working here at the mm-hmm. Institute. What's been really wonderful for me is the uh, fact that we have this great environment to work in Mm -hmm. where people seem to want to solve problems um, rather than stake out positions, Mm -hmm. uh, which separated people. And so at the Institute, we have both basic and applied researchers, and we can answer questions that the basic researchers can't answer by themselves and the applied researchers Mm -hmm. can't answer by themselves. And as an example, we started looking at a chlorpyrifos, which is an insecticide or a pesticide that kills insects, that is used in Oregon a small amount. It's been slowly throughout the country, EPA has reduced the applications that's allowed in, but it's mm-hmm. the most widely used insecticide in the world. Yeah. And there have been a lot of inconclusive studies on the chronic effects of this pesticide. We know that from acute exposures, you'll yeah. die from uh, respiratory distress um, and um, yeah. sort of muscle paralysis. Hmm. But the chronic effects, what happens when you have a little bit over a long yeah. period of time? That's what's been under question. Mm-hmm. We thought that probably the reason was that the mechanism was different for those chronic effects, those mm-hmm. long-term effects, were on the ner- which were on the nervous system. People... Mm-hmm had cognitive effects from these long-term exposures. But we can never tie it to the actual exposure because we think our measurement of the exposure was based on the acute effects of uh, mm. that caused this re- respiratory paralysis. But we didn't think that's where it was happening. It was happening in the brain, not in the in the oh. um, in the lungs. Or, mm. um, and so we found a population in another country that was exclusively exposed to this chlorpyrifos. Yeah. So we could look at just the effects of that chemical. We went to and then we developed a study in which we found out how the the chemical got into the body Mm -hmm. through skin exposure. Mm. So we could develop a method of prevention Mm. through personal protective equipment if uh, no other way. But we still didn't know what the mechanism was. And so we got the basic researchers involved and we, we gave them the information on what the exposures were about, and they took that into animal research and mm-hmm. used the same exposures in rats and looked at the impacts there. And we believe now, we through that research, we found the mechanism for the chronic exposure effects, which is different mm-hmm. from the acute exposure effects. Couldn't have been done by us. They couldn't have done that work without Mm -hmm. us bringing the information to them about what the true exposure patterns were in humans that they can mimic in the animals. And Mm -hmm. to tell them how those exposures got into people so we could identify an easy way of preventing those exposures. So basic and applied researchers together answered questions Mm -hmm. that neither could answer by themselves. That's fascinating. (laughs) Bring up the point that here at the Institute, we have basic all the way from basic to applied. And I think you can really tell a story with something like that, like you just did. And I think that's what we're trying to uncover each day and to uncover the mechanisms that we're able to understand how to prevent them. And off it goes into intervention research. Thank you. That was a really good example of how that happens. Uh, what do you love most about working here at the Institute? Well, that's a great question. It's really a two-part answer. Mm-hmm. Part is the environment in Oregon mm-hmm. where people really want to answer questions and management and labor work so well together mm-hmm. to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. And the second is the environment at the Institute where the researchers really support each other and help right. each other. The basic uh, uh, researchers help the applied researchers and vice versa. And those two environments just make it a wonderful place to work. Yeah. 
There's a reason why we're still here 30 years later, isn't it? That, that's <laughs> quite correct. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. So in this podcast episode today, uh, we talked about the history of the Institute, as well as how our research has evolved over the years um, in terms of moving from neurotoxicology research, injury prevention, and beyond. And so now we have Dr. Stephen Shea, who will be joining us to talk more about the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences, the present and the future of the research here and all the great work we're doing here at the Institute. So Dr. Stephen Shea, you have been at the Institute here as the director since 2012. So can you talk a little bit more about where we are now in terms of our priorities and our accomplishments? Certainly. Well, I'd first like to talk a little more compared to what other people have said about the unique facets of our institute. Most research across the United States, certainly at OHSU, is driven by faculty members. But because of the unique state we're in, in terms of support from the state of Oregon, we're able to go beyond the traditional research driven by a faculty member whose rewards and drive is based mostly upon having an idea, applying for a grant, performing a study, writing up that study, and then going on to the next idea. Because we have a mix of basic research in animals, human research in the lab, applied research in the workplace, and have outreach and dissemination is just a, an absolutely unique feature of the Institute. And because of that, we can look at how we fit together how we can do better, and we can design our research into themes and answer important questions as a team rather than as individual scientists like other institutions. Some of the themes and the important questions we've been, addre been addressing include how do we improve the safety and health of shift workers, particularly night shift workers, because if you work at night, you generally eat at night, and your body's not designed to be awake at night or eat at night. It's designed to be asleep and resting at night. That comes with challenges for both health and safety. Um, you can manipulate schedules to help, help improve that, um, and you may be able to manipulate the internal body clock, or you may be able to improve behaviors such as timing of meals, etc. These simple measures might improve overall health and safety of night shift workers, and we can address that not only in the applied research, but we can go really down to the basics. We have investigators in the Institute who are studying the body clock of the fruit fly, of the mouse in the brain, and the body clock in all of the tissues of the mice, in the liver and the heart, for instance. And then I, my research is studying the body clock and how humans are affected by staying awake at night in the lab. Now, that same kind of interdisciplinary approach is there for numerous other themes in the institute including reducing the adverse health effects of occupational exposures and we have people doing clinical trials which were based on animal work in our labs to mitigate the effects of ultraviolet light exposure on DNA repair mechanisms and then moving on to studies in humans that will improve DNA repair and avoid some of the dangerous skin cancers caused by exposure to ultraviolet light. And of course, there's a theme of total worker health, which has really developed over the last eight to 10 years in the Institute. We started off as one of the four established total worker health centers in across the United States, funded by NIOSH, still one of the only six as that program has grown at NIOSH. And 
Total Worker Health, it's emblematic of our institute where we think of the improvement in health and well-being of the human as not only the person at work, but also the person at home as a whole person. This greater emphasis on collaborative science across varied disciplines helps us disseminate the results in, of course, the traditional scientific places and journals, but also in wider arenas, including communities and workplaces. So I feel that that is one of the most amazing things about our institute is our ability to do the traditional science. Uh, we receive numerous grants from the National Institutes of Health, which it, these are difficult grants to get, showing that our scientists are performing at a high level. But I believe we also take it to the, a different level by engaging with the community. Yeah, it's wonderful to hear all the different focus areas, all the way from basic to going into the workplace and impacting uh, the worker, the workforce as a whole. And you know, personally, I, I've never seen that at a research institute. So it's it's just prolific to see that happening together um, in one central area, especially 30 years of it evolving. And I just wanted to kind of go further and speak more about the work that we do here being funded by workers' compensation is that we do work with a large number of different types of industries here in Oregon and beyond from construction workers, migrant workers, nurses, veterans, home care workers, transportation, you know, we, we do have a lot of kind of government-related workforces that we work with, um, all the way down to the more bench science, the basic science, where you know, you're, you talked about the DNA repair of human disease uh, now with uh, Dr. Nicole Bowles on shift work and firefighters, and all the way down to circadian rhythm research with yourself, um, Chuck, uh, Dr. Andrew McHill and others. Can you just talk more a bit about industry focus areas in the state of Oregon? Um, yeah, I, the one I would highlight probably mm. is the firefighters because th these are people where clearly you cannot adjust their schedule so they don't work at nighttime. I would put them, you know, all, almost all emergency workers where you have 24-hour coverage. The firefighters have a unique situation where by dint of history or some other quirk, they have very, very long schedules, up to some of them 96 hours or even longer sometimes. So four days and four nights mm -hmm. of being on service. Of course, firefighters also have the peculiar ability to sleep when they're not busy, when they're at the station. But that's not well monitored. And uh, if you are asleep, you have to, um, the, the amount of uh, quality of sleep that you would get, recognizing that you might get an alarm any moment and have to go from zero to 60 in a few seconds, uh, it really does disturb the kind of sleep you get. Because of that challenge, I feel like we have some of the expertise here where we could examine things like, you know, the recuperative nature of the short nap. How does that help you improve your cognition, your vigilance, and your safety? But also, how can we mitigate the, the problems where staying awake at night might affect your overall health? So th these are big challenges for firefighters, for the community um, in general, and for the scientists who address those, who try and help people with those questions. For, for me, it's just really fascinating. I've studied sleep in the laboratory for about 30 years, and I think I learned so much just from a focus group when I listened to eight firefighters in 
Portland talking about the challenges that they have and the techniques that they have to get around those challenges. They're not in the textbooks. And it's and only by doing that kind of work can you bridge the gap between what is known in the science, what we do in the lab, and what is happening actually in the workplace. That particular instance of trying to stay awake for very, very long periods and performing in a safe manner and maintaining your health, which all seems, if you put it all together, tough to do, if not impossible. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of work to be done, not just with firefighters, but many different industries that have to go through different things like working multiple shifts in a very condensed amount of time. And I mean, like you said, when you shift that focus to seeing it happen in real time, it really does kind of put into perspective the need of studying safety, health, and well-being for workers. And so I wanted to end today with areas of innovation and rethinking and how it's going to shape the future of our research here at the Institute and its priorities um, and sharing with our listeners where you see the Institute going in the future. I know there's a lot of hot topics like future of work, gig working, telecommuting. There's a lot of emerging areas. Can you speak a little bit more about terms of where the Institute can go from here and beyond? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that we are challenged with so many great new changes in the workplace. I would, when I say great new, I would, I would say big new changes, not necessarily all great. In particular, for instance, the gig economy, you know, the, just the insecurity, the financial insecurity, the are you going to have work tomorrow? The inability to plan and, and schedule hinders your, your social life. It adds to stress. Uh, so I think one big area that, that is common to almost any occupation these days is stress. Psychosocial stress, physical stress, uh, the stress of working at the wrong time of day. All of those impact health. And I feel like that the Institute is moving towards examining stress from all these different aspects, all these different angles. And it fits well into the total worker health rubric, managing stress. How can you do that? Now, stress is defined in so many different ways. We've begun to examine them in different in those different aspects. For instance, Nicole Bowles has been running a, a journal club on stress. We've had investigators from all over campus and outside campus visiting as we work through these problems together. So we can look at biomarkers of stress. We can take blood and saliva and urine and, and assay for different chemicals that might give markers of stress. We can measure heart rate and blood pressure. We can look at schedules and we can begin to put all that together. Uh, exposures to stresses at work is, of course, important as well. Um, and it's not only the traditional stress from time schedule and, and the amount of work people have, but also you can envisage the exposure to certain chemicals in the environment would stress the body differently. So we're trying to put that together. So examining the exposures, inhaled particles, for instance, that can affect physiological responses is all, from my perspective, part of the stress question. If we can study stress as a big problem and come up with generalized solutions or specific solutions for certain occupations, that would be a big step forward for us. And, and, I, and I know numerous faculty members in our institute are beginning to think in that way. Uh, so I feel that's one area that we're, we're going forward. 
with. Total Worker Health, of course, was a, is another one that I really want us to uh, continue to work on. And in terms of the other areas, uh, it's interesting. We had a, um, a retreat last week where we discussed where, where are the big questions and where are the gaps that we can fill. Uh, science moves, I would say, pretty slowly. It takes numerous years to come up with the ideas and apply for the grants and, and do the studies and come up with the answers and then apply those answers to the workforces. But our institute actually can be quite nimble because we get um, some help from the state in terms of funding from workers' comp. So that enables us to go in new directions quickly. Um, and so I'm not going to answer you now exactly where we're going to go, and that's dependent upon numerous of the pilot studies that are ongoing uh, with faculty members across our institute. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of work to be done here for sure. And um, when you mentioned stress, I think you were stressing me out <laughs> on all the different areas that needed to be addressed. But I think they're all emerging and uh, needed, you know, with stress and burnout being top of mind for a lot of employers and the workforce as a whole. The future is bright for the Institute. Uh, it's evolved even as somebody who's only been here for three years, it's I've seen the growth of your leadership and how that's developed with pilot questions all the way through randomized controlled trials, clinical trials, and beyond. So thank you so much, Dr. Shea, for your time today to um, talk to our listeners a little bit more and just to help us better understand what the present and future of the Institute holds. Um, we really look forward to the next 30 years and more. Um, and yeah, we'll... We'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I, could I, before I go, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. And I do think of this podcast as, as mm -hmm. something that you you all initiated last year, which is a sign of the changing times. And um, it's not something that I would have thought about doing alone. And it, but it is because we have such an eclectic a group of experts across the institute that we can come out with the come up with these ideas and keep our finger on the pulse so thanks for your foresight in that regard you're listening to what's work got to do with it your go-to resource on all things workplace safety health and well-being this has been an episode of our podcast series where we invite you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours occupational stress job safety and other issues affect our lives at home and at work. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and is hosted and directed by Helen Shuckers, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramishbabu. Our mission at the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. Home to over 75 scientists and research staff, the Institute explores a range of questions related to the prevention of work-related injury and disease and promotion of health in the workplace. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss? Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or our social media channels at facebook.com slash ochhealthsci.ohsu or follow us on Twitter at ohsuochhealth to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.